Bruce Nolan is standing by. Hey, wacky Bruce. Coming to you from an undisclosed location, this is the Bruce Exclusive. And here's your host, Bruce Nolan. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to another edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. The Buffalo Bills fell to the Miami Dolphins in the sweltering heat of South Florida for their first loss of the season to fall to 2-1. and one. And as we always do on this show, we are going to tackle some of the narratives that have start to come out about the game. But the first thing I want to do is go ahead and tell you a little bit about what this episode is going to be like. As y'all know, these episodes are structured a little differently than most podcasts. They're structured a little bit more like traditional sermons. And because of that, sometimes they'll have like object lessons or they'll have stories that are somehow relevant and then we'll tie it back together. There will be multiple of those in this episode. I thought I had a lot of really good ideas that I really liked. And so it might end up being a little longer than I would otherwise like to hope. The secondary title for this episode is The Xanatos Gambit. And for those of you who are not familiar, The Xanatos Gambit is a plot trope in storytelling, specifically when it comes to television series, that takes its name from David Xanatos, who was the primary antagonist in the 1990s animated television show Gargoyles. I have mentioned previously that I believe it to be one of the most underrated shows of all time. And the Xanatos Gambit comes from this show because it is a method of being able to consistently tell a story where the villain is always in it. Because television series that do not ascribe to a, quote, villain of the week scenario, where you have a little bit more serialized storytelling, struggle with telling a good villain story. And the reason that is, is because if you have the villain constantly beating the protagonist, it really minimizes the protagonist's journey. And if you have the protagonists consistently beating the villain, then it minimizes the villain. But if you only set up for one big showdown at the end of an entire series, then you're going to run into potential boredom in the middle because you don't have enough conflict. If you set up one big ending, one big climax for the end of a season and that has a good strong close now you have to find a new villain for the next season so it's a trouble that is faced by a lot of people who have to write for television shows you don't want the heroes to feel incompetent and more importantly the viewers aren't going to like it if the villain is constantly winning but if the protagonists beat the villain constantly then it undermines the threat oh there's no harm same thing, la-di-da. If you constantly win and you lock up the villain, he gets out every time. You're like, okay, well, that kind of undermines the danger. So how do you reconcile these points? The way you do it is through the Xanatos Gambit, 
which is making sure that even protagonist victories have some small victory for the antagonist. The villain comes up with a killer robot that is a big climax to an episode. And the protagonists defeat the killer robot. And it looks like the protagonists have won. And they did. They got their victory. But the last scene of the episode is the antagonist going, well, that worked out okay. I feel pretty good about that. And you as the viewer are like, well, what are you, what are you talking about? And the camera pans out to the villain mass producing that killer robot. And you think to yourself, oh my gosh, it was all a test. Our protagonist got a victory, but the antagonist didn't really lose. Victory and loss in this scenario is not really a zero-sum game. Because even if the protagonist gets a W, the antagonist still kind of wins. This is a method you can use to tell a story where even if the protagonist get a W, which is satisfying for the viewer, you haven't undermined the credibility of the long-term threat of the antagonist. This is how I felt watching the Buffalo Bills Miami Dolphins game. I had multiple tweets ready to go if the Bills would have pulled off the victory in the same sense that a writer might have their column sort of pre-written down the stretch of a game. And one of the tweets was the Buffalo Bills may have won the battle, but how badly was the war affected? It's a scenario where even if the Buffalo Bills come back and win that game, even if Isaiah McKenzie gets down or gets out of bounds, the Buffalo Bills stop the clock, they kick a field goal, they win by one. And we're all really happy about that. It's a yes, we won, but at what cost? Well, we won, but Christian Benford's gone. Ed Oliver's still out. Tommy Doyle tore his ACL. There's problems even in the victory. Even the victory is tainted by the idea that the Dolphins, who, mind you, have suffered through injury problems of their own, didn't suffer them as severely as the Buffalo Bills did. And as such, even the W could have been argued to move that gap a little closer between the Miami Dolphins and the Buffalo Bills. You may have heard this referred to as a Perrick victory. In the past, to paraphrase, the quote that it's based on is one more such victory and we will be utterly undone. So even if the Bills would have won, even if the quote unquote good guys, because the vast majority of you who are listening to this are probably Buffalo Bills fans, even if the good guys beat the quote unquote bad guys, it still would have felt like a Xanatos gambit to me. And injuries were a factor. They were a major contributing factor to the loss. So was the heat. But it's very important, incredibly important, to draw a distinction between an excuse and a contributing factor. Well, you might say, Bruce, I'm not making excuses. I'm just stating facts. Well, yes, contributing factors are facts and excuses are facts. It's what you do with them that makes them excuses or contributing factors. The heat was really bad, and that's why we lost the game. That's an excuse. The heat was really bad. That's just a fact. 
It's the second part of that statement that makes it an excuse. Why? Because you are using it to excuse something. Excuse the noun is intrinsically tied to its use as a verb. If you are not using a fact to excuse something, then it is by definition not an excuse. The verb and the noun are intrinsically tied together. I mentioned on Twitter not too long ago that I was talking to a young person recently. And this young person was attempting to tell me that he was not, quote unquote, dating this girl. And I said, okay, okay, so you go out on dates with her? He says, yes. I said, but you're not dating. He goes, no, we're talking. And he attempted to explain to me, me who has been out of the dating scene for a very, very long time, that he's, quote unquote, talking to this girl, not dating. He acknowledges that they go on dates, but that's not what dating means. That's what he tells me anyway. Dating is boyfriend-girlfriend. Dating is exclusivity. And I said, well, no, I refuse this. He goes, what do you mean? I said, I refuse this. I refuse to separate out the noun from the verb. If you are consistently going on dates with someone, then you are dating. That's how that works. The noun and the verb go together. I'm not going to define the noun differently than I define the verb. It's the exact same way with excuse and excusing. Something is an excuse if you are using it to excuse something. That's how it works. The noun can't be the noun unless the verb is in play. You can't be dating someone unless you're going on dates. The noun and the verb. They are tied together. So when we're talking about the factors that unquestionably played a role, it is the method by which we use them that determines whether they're excuses or whether they're contributing factors. And it's usually the word so. So that's why we didn't win the game. The heat was really bad, so the Bills lost. It's that conjunction, so, that has a tendency to make the second half, the participle of that sentence into an excuse. Now you're making an excuse. So we can acknowledge contributing factors like the heat, like the injuries. We can do this. I would encourage us not to make it an excuse because an excuse by definition means it wipes away everything else. That's what it means. That's what excuses mean. Excused absence is an absence that is essentially wiped away because that's what it's it's been excused. That's what excusing means. But we don't excuse the loss due to the heat because if we excuse the loss due to the heat, we will stop paying attention to any of the non-heat related factors that went into the Buffalo Bills losing that game. Well, Bruce, it was the injuries. The Dolphins went into the game Without their cornerback two, right tackle one, right tackle two, defensive tackle two, wide receiver three, tight end two. They had a drive without the QB one. They had one of their corners out for almost a quarter. They had other stuff going on too. Was it as significant as the Bills? I don't think so. But again, not an excuse, a contributing factor. The way I normally feel about play calling versus execution is the way I feel about circumstances versus on-field play in this game. 
If the play calling provided an opportunity that wasn't seized, then the play calling wasn't the primary factor in a loss because that's all it's designed to do. Provide an opportunity. For all the circumstances that impacted this game, the Bills still had multiple opportunities to not only win it, but win it in convincing fashion despite the contributing factors. Now, the amount of opportunities may have been diminished by the circumstances, but how many opportunities should a team that is a Super Bowl favorite reasonably expect to need to defeat the Miami Dolphins? If you need everything to go well, then I would argue that's a problem. Contributing factor, yes. Excuse, no. We are going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We got a lot more to get into. Stick with me. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. We talked about the Xanatos Gambit. We talked about dates versus dating and how that ties in to excuse versus excusing. We talked about principles and narratives coming out of that game about the way that we treat contributing factors. And now I'm going to tell a story about a dog. You all know my dog, Boo. Boo is my little one. He was my original dog. And he's getting old. But in our heads, he's still the dog that was found digging through a trash can on the side of the road. And because we got him at that point, Boo has really long quicks. Quicks are the part of the nail that actually has a blood vessel in it. It is essentially their cuticle, but it runs through the nail. And when you're trimming the dog's nails, you don't want to trim too far because you'll hit the quick and you'll cause them to bleed. Now, the good thing is that because Boo is a house dog, there's really no problem with just taking him to the doctor more often to get them trimmed. No issue. But he has really long quicks. And he has long quicks because we don't really know exactly how long he was on the street without proper care before he came to us. Now, the vet gets really good at not cutting them close because they do it so often. They've only ever touched his quick, I think, once in all the times that we have taken Boo to the vet. Why? Because they're used to it. They're used to dealing with his long quicks. We have to take him more frequently than some people do, but it's the way it works. That's how I feel about the Buffalo Bills in close games. I wrote an article for Buffalo Rumblings about this topic and the narrative about the Bills being 0-7 in their last seven one-score games. Yeah. Cutting it close recently seems to make them bleed. But it also doesn't happen very often. It doesn't happen very often at all. And I think that's a good thing. So let's dive into it for a second. The easiest and most common rebuttal to the Bills being 0-7 in their last seven one-score games is that the Bills were spectacular in one-score games in 2020. They went 5-1, and one, and their only loss came on the Hale Murray throw to DeAndre Hopkins against the Cardinals. Now, the head coach in 2020 was the same. The defensive coordinator was the same. The quarterback was the same. The offensive coordinator is now different, but if you were trying to isolate that as a variable, then it would only apply to the most recent Dolphins loss and not 
to any of the losses in 2021, which you guessed it, had the same offensive coordinator as 2020. Did all these people involved magically lose the clutch gene in the two years that have passed? It feels unlikely, but let's go further. In the last three years, why am I using three years? That's since Josh Allen leapt into MVP-level play and the Bills became meaningful Super Bowl contenders. The Bills are 9-14 and 14 in one-score games overall. Now, it might seem that even with a larger sample size, that the team is failing to capitalize in the clutch. You might think, Bruce, 9-14 and 14 isn't very good. Let's do better. When prognosticators are looking for regression candidates among good NFL teams from one year to the next, one of the items consistently pointed out is that a high winning percentage in one-score games isn't a sustainable metric. PicksWise wrote an article where they estimated that one-score games are essentially a coin flip and that teams could expect regression to the mean whether they are exceptionally good or exceptionally bad in winning percentage in those situations in a given season. There is an element of randomness to close games that we as fans frequently are not comfortable discussing because it would mean that there wasn't always a solution to the problem. Random ball bounces, penalties called or uncalled in strategically valuable situations, the directional doink of a field goal. There are random factors all over the place that affect one-score games in a meaningful way every single week in the NFL. So how do you go about trying to remove the randomness from the game? Is it as simple as just get good? Well, the best way is just to blow teams out. Don't let the randomness affect the win-loss column. Accept that those things can add a point here or a point there. But if you win by a lot, you don't have to worry about it. Now, the Bills have been doing an exceptional job of this. On average, between 50 and 60% of NFL games are decided by one score or less in any given season. In 2020, the Bills ranked fifth in the NFL with an average scoring differential of plus 6.8, just within the boundary of what would be considered to be one score. In 2021, that number grew to 11.5. In 2022, thus far, that number has ballooned even further to 17.7. In 2020, 37.5% of Buffalo Bills games were decided by one score. In 2021, it was 29.4. Acknowledging the randomness associated with one score games and not falling into the any given Sunday trap is a much better solution than playing with fire week over week and hoping that the clutch gene carries you through time and time again. But Bruce, you say, the Bills are going to play better teams in the playoff and they'll need to win close games. The average margin of victory in NFL playoff games over a 10-year period studied by Stats on Tap indicated that postseason games as a whole don't have a markedly different margin of average victory than a typical NFL regular season. So we know that over a large enough sample size, the 9-14 record the Bills boast with a good quarterback and a good coach in one-score games isn't egregious enough to make a narrative out of. We know that victory in one-score games carries much more randomness than we would care to admit. And we know that avoiding one-score games as much as possible, as the Bills have been doing for the last three years, is the best path to victory. I am not willing to go searching for a solution to a problem I'm not sure actually exists. Andrew Pickert agreed with me when he sent an email and said, Bruce, I haven't written in a while since the almighty take days 
but this narrative bothered me this week and I thought you'd be the guy to share my thoughts with and I'd be interested to hear yours. So I already went ahead and shared mine with you guys. He said in 2020, a narrative was that Josh Allen was clutch. He had something like nine fourth quarter comebacks since his career started and the Bills were great in one score games. At the time, the team struggled a lot more to move the ball and score on offense and the defense spent a lot more time in one score. Gotta have it series. Scores were very close in most games. This was how they operated as a team, getting just enough to win many times because Allen would almost will it to happen in the fourth quarter. When they had a bad game, like the Titans, it was a blowout. In 2021, and it looks like so far in 2022, when the Bills are on their game, have correctly anticipated how the defense is going to play them, and have the right answers, they boat race teams. When they don't, they lose by one score. While this has resulted in an 0-7 record recently, to me, it's more of a correlation versus a causation thing. They're not falling apart in one-score games, but rather they're not playing their best football in those games, and their level of talent and organizational prowess keeps them in those games despite the subpar performance. They don't typically start out the game on point and they fall apart in the fourth quarter. That's not true. Or when the score gets close, in many of the games last year, they started the game off and it was uphill climb to overcome it. I just think too much is being made of their one-score record. I'd love to hear your thoughts, and I anticipate it's probably on your list of things to talk about, but I had to get my thoughts out of my head. Thanks for reading. And as usual, for your contributions to the great landscape of Bill's content creators. P.S. After the loss on Sunday, I was not happy. The usual roller coaster of emotions started upon me. Afterwards, my four-year-old wanted to play football and asked me to play with him. In the past, I may have been too stuck in the game and the result to realize time with him was more important. We played outside while I listened to post-game stuff, and we had fun playing our own Bills game in the yard. My ability to do that is thanks in part to you offering your perspective on fandom. Thank you for that. Andrew. So Andrew, I agree with you. I do think too much is being made of it right now. I know for a fact that my co-host on Friday, Nate Geary from WGR, I know for a fact he feels differently on this topic than I do. I don't know if it's going to come up. At the time, I'm recording this Wednesday evening. I have no idea if it's going to come up on Friday or not. But I know he and I have different views on this. David sent me an email and said, some people, I won't mention names, have always been pushing hard for cornerback depth. Through planning and luck, we've gotten it to where we were worried about getting young players enough snaps. Two weeks later, it looks like with Benford, Johnson, and White all out, Cam Lewis may be starting. I can't help but wonder if those aforementioned people feel just a bit vindicated. David. It's really hard for me to take victory laps about you could never have too many good corners because I think the Bills had perfectly reasonable corners. I mean, they drafted two people who are going to play meaningful snaps this year in Elam and Benford. They had White coming back. They had Jackson. They have Taron Johnson. They had Cam Lewis has been in the system. I mean, I don't think now is the time for me to take a victory lap and go, see, I told you you need more corners because they drafted two of them and both of them were meaningful players. It's just, they just had bad luck. And I don't think any amount of planning can prepare you for three injuries. I mean, is there another position on the entire team where you can afford to lose three of them and you're fine? Anybody? Bueller? So for me, I don't think it's time for me to take a victory lap. Ladies and gentlemen, we did it. We did the thing. All the things have been done. We said we were going to do them. We did them. We told stories. We talked about narratives. I got a chance to name drop one of my favorite animated television shows from the 1990s. Everything was wonderful. 
And maybe you don't like the stories. Maybe you don't want to hear about my dogs. Maybe you don't want to hear about dates versus dating. Maybe you're just really caught up in a one score narrative and you're not happy with the fact that I have different thoughts on it. Well, in that case, I'm sorry, but that's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Rumbles.